Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Woodward Fisher, who is Professor of Geobiology and Associate Director for Center for Autonomous Systems and Technologies at California Institute of Technology. His research focus areas include uh, historical geobiology, evolution of the oxygenic photosynthesis, and rise of atmospheric oxygen. Welcome, Woody. <clears throat> well, thanks, Gil. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with your 2019 paper entitled, How Did Life Come to Tolerate and Thrive in an Oxygenated World? Uh, in which you say, looking across our planet's four and a half billion year history, the rise of dioxygen and intervals sometimes called the Great Oxygenation Event is arguably the most important environmental change. This revolution occurred approximately 2.3 billion years ago, roughly at the midway point in Earth's history. It was ultimately driven by a biological innovation, the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis. So um, I would think, uh, Woody, around uh, so four, four and a half billion years old Earth, as you say, uh, around 2.3 billion years uh, ago, there was this uh, sort of a, uh, a bad event, right? Uh, oxygen was toxic, I would imagine, for most, sure. of the, most of the systems then. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is the, this is the really remarkable thing is, is, you know, our planet's exceptionally old, four and a half billion years old. Um, and, and we think it's been living for much of that time. Yeah. rocks that are four and a half billion years old, but some of the earliest rocks we have are almost four billion years old and they already contain evidence of life in them. Hmm. So, so even though our, you know, our planet's been living for most of its long history, but it's not until relatively late in Earth history and, and relatively late here, I mean the midway point, about halfway through Earth's history, that oxygen becomes an important molecule in Earth environments, in the atmosphere, an important molecule for biology. So uh, for, for those that know a little bit about uh, the chemistry of oxygen, 
it's an incredibly reactive molecule. It's a very powerful molecule when you can react it with uh, with metals, when you can react it with organics. And so um, all of life that gets built for the first half of Earth's history doesn't know anything about oxygen. It's, it's, it's built around iron. It's built around sulfur. It's built around hydrogen. It's not built around oxygen. And so you have yeah. this, this really amazing, you know, I often liken it to, to a double-edged sword. There, the, when, when the earth becomes oxygenated, when photosynthesis emerges and oxygenates the planet, of course, there's tremendous um, opportunity, but that a tremendous kind of biological opportunity, evolutionary opportunity, ecological opportunity. But the problem is that for, for all of life's existence to that point, oxygen is totally incompatible with, with the decisions that cells have made. And so in order to kind of take advantage of the opportunities of oxygen, you've got to first learn how to survive it. Yeah, and I was thinking, um, Woody, uh, this is not in the paper, but as you know, there's a lot of interest in extraterrestrials and exoplanets. And yeah. um, it, it, so if we believe this is sort of an accident, so the end outcome that we currently see on Earth is really the net effect of an accident. If, if that did not really happen, uh, and you're going to get into the details of, of, of how that happened, if it did not happen, uh, then we would have had a world with full of life, but very, very different types of life, right? Very different, especially because a lot of, you know, when you look around, you go, you go for a walk in nature somewhere, a lot of the stuff that's so apparent to you, all the big macroscopic multicellular stuff, the plants and the animals and the fungi, the mushrooms, um, all of these things exhibit what we refer to as complex multicellularity. And that is only a character that emerges in aerobic or oxygen breathing, oxygen utilizing organisms. So if you don't get the rise of oxygen, you don't get the biological production of oxygen, not only do you end up with a world um, with, with uh, you know, very different life, that life would arguably be a lot less interesting to look at. It would be microbial, it would be diverse, but it would not express itself through the kinds of, of macroscopic structures, these really amazing structures we associate with complex multicellular organisms. And they're unlikely to send any radio signals out, I would imagine. <laughs> Very <laughs> unlikely, yes. Yeah, so, 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 so intelligence is part of that, right? It, it, to the degree that, those, that one of those groups is one in which intelligence emerges. Um, you know, that's a that's a that's a, an important contingency in the history of our planet that we would love to understand to be able to evaluate the, the likelihood of finding life elsewhere. Yeah. So so you mentioned the multicellularity uh, sort of started with the with the emergence of oxygen. And I know that you're going to talk about this, about cyanobacteria. Did cyanobacteria had some level of multicellularity in it? Yeah, so this is what, what it, you know, it gets really fun sometimes, you know, well, we, we, we get into the weeds a bit as scientists often when we say, <laughs> oh, this, this is multicellular. No, this is multicellular. And it's true that there are microbes that differentiate cell types, and they can even have what you would, one could argue is kind of complex behavior. But if I were to yeah. hold any one of these, for example, a multicellular cyanobacterium next to a plant, you would you would clearly recognize, you know, how much more 
morphological detail is, is pre present as a plant. And that's because when we talk about most of the life on earth, most is microbial and microbes express their diversity through metabolism and through chemistry, but not through morphology. Yeah. On the other hand, plants and animals, well, they're all doing the same thing. They're either doing photosynthesis or they're eating products of photosynthesis in one way or another. So they're chemically less interesting but they become morphologically very interesting as they become multicellular. So it's just, they're kind of two very different ways of, of expressing, you know, diversity and what they're about. Yeah, so it's not a technical definition of multicellularity. It's really about complexity and the ability to grow complex life. And so, so what exactly happened uh, around 2.3 billion years ago? Well, so this is the thing that's so interesting. So, so I'm, I'm my position. I'm, I'm actually a professor of geobiology. I'm a geobiologist, and that might be a kind of a, you know, I, you know, I can imagine some of your audience scratching their head. What is geo? I've never heard. You know, I know what a biologist is, and I know what a geologist is, and and so you can kind of imagine putting those two things together. But geobiology is it's a new discipline. It's an emerging discipline that works under the premise that if you want to understand how the Earth works you have to appreciate that for most of its history, it's been living. And not only that, that some of the biggest changes that have taken place on the earth are ones that are, that are intimately associated with biological change. And so one of the really cool things that biology buys you is bio, the, the biology is, is always evolving. The biosphere is always innovating, new ways of being, new forms of, of organisms. And, and, that yeah. can, and that can feedback on the environment. So most, when most people think about interactions between the life and the environment, you might think of an example like the bolide impact at the end of the Cretaceous, that you know, this, this big uh, impact that hit the Yucatan Peninsula in, in Mexico, and we see the demise of all the non-avian dinosaurs. Okay, well, we yeah. can see that how the kind of flow of information works there. Okay, something very bad happened to the earth, and the biosphere responded. What people are recognizing now, and this is very much coming out of this, this discipline, geobiology, is that the, 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 the crosstalk goes both ways, meaning there are also intervals in Earth history where there's tremendous environmental change, but it's not, it's, it's not the environment change and the biosphere noticed, it's the biosphere changed and the environment noticed. And so mm -hmm. the, 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 the rise of oxygen or what some call the great oxygenation event, again, this thing that's happening at the midway point, kind of 2.3 billion, billion years ago, this change, the ability to oxygenate the atmosphere completely changes all Earth's surface environments. It changes the minerals you find and the places that you find them. It impacts the way Earth makes rocks. It impacts in the, all the metabolic opportunities for life that would emerge. It impacts the radiative properties of the atmosphere and climate. All of these things change and they change because a small group of organisms, this group that we call the cyanobacteria, and you know, it's a, you know, it's kind of, it, it's kind of a, kind of a cool name. You know, I don't know how, you know, if, if there's, if there's one group of bacteria to know and love, this is one of them um, <laughs> because they're, because they really are founders of our modern, of our modern world. They're the group that yeah. figures out, oh, I can use the energy available in visible light to oxidize water and, and the reason and use water therefore as a substrate to grow on. And our planet is covered in light and our planet is covered in water. So that's a huge breakthrough. 
for this group. And so, so when we talk about this huge environmental change, it really is this group that invents this flavor of photosynthesis that, that ends up so groundbreaking, so transformative. And, and the world is, is, it's irreversible. The world is never again the same. Yeah, so it's so, so interesting, Buddy. So this endogenous change uh, is potentially many orders of magnitude bigger than a meteor hit that wiped out the the dinosaurs and the arrival of not arrival but the, the rise of the mammals. Yes, but those all those things could be considered sort of small changes in the context of this this particular absolutely so you think yeah if you think about how profound you know this is one of the largest extinction events that we know it associated with this with the cretaceous cretaceous the dinosaur you know non-avian dinosaurs go away and yet what we're talking about here at the rise of oxygen is yet bigger um so around 2.3 billion years uh cyanobacteria figures out um how to use sunlight and water uh, to, to essentially get energy, is that was that the change? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's you know, it it formally the source of the energy comes from the sunlight. You know, it's so it's 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 sun it's sun driven, but sunlight it's it's figuring out how to use that energy to then turn it into a chemical energy of the kind that you can oxidize water, and and that mm -hmm. is is a thing that we recognize today is quite a task. It's some of the most complicated chemistry that occurs in the biosphere. Um, put another way, the, the, the protein complex that's responsible for, for engendering this chemistry is one of the hottest things in all of biology. And we would love, we still, we still don't have a perfect understanding of how it works. And, and there's a huge effort, for example, in chemistry to try to understand um, principles of how cyanobacteria actually accomplish this chemistry with the idea that, wow, if we could oxidize water as efficiently as a plant does or an alga does, that might be yeah. the foundation for a solar fuel. And so you say in the paper, earlier photosynthesis was uh, an anoxygenic and required reduced iron, sulfur, carbon, or hydrogen. And so, so, so uh, did photosynthesis, the process itself evolved and, and, and change over time? Yeah, absolutely. So, so photosynthesis begins, um, so we, we have some data on, on when it begins. It's pretty early in the biosphere, but it's a much simpler, a much, much biochemically simpler version than what occurs in plants or algae or cyanobacteria. And those simple versions, they rely on, in order to grow, for those simple versions of photosynthesis to grow, you need reduced materials provided at the rate that the earth gives them up, which is either volcanically or with the weathering of rock. And those rates are very slow. You're kind of waiting at these, you know, we call them tectonic rates, you know, think of it, the rates at which Earth's plates move around. Those are the rates at which, you know, the Earth is providing iron or hydrogen or sulfur to Earth's surface environments. And that's very different than being able to say, oh, I can free myself from those needs because there's water everywhere. So it's a it's a big breakthrough when you can kind of leave those those sources of iron and sulfur and hydrogen behind. And, and then in just just enjoy water. Wherever there's light and water, you can live. 
So did, did cyanobacteria exist before that in just a mutation in, in, the, in that organism that ultimately led to this? Bacteria have an interesting prehistory and that we didn't know much about until recently. So, so you, you might imagine if you're interested in understanding where this oxygen producing, what we call oxygenic form of photosynthesis comes from, well, you're left with the cyanobacteria today. They're the group, it's a singularity. It happened once, they're the ones that innovate it. How did they innovate it? Well, yeah. the, the thing that's so interesting is, is it, you might naturally ask, well, who are their close living relatives? Maybe they can provide some measure. You know, it, it's, it's akin to um, trying to understand something about human evolution with no knowledge of the great apes. Well, if you don't know of our, you know, where do we come from? What do we look like? What do we look like, you know, 500,000 years ago or a million years ago or 10 million years ago? You don't have any resolution on that kind of thing. So for cyanobacteria, that was the position we were in until very recently, only about five years ago. What we now recognize is that there's actually a bunch of groups of bacteria that are very close living relatives of the cyanobacteria, but they don't do photosynthesis. In fact, most of them live in dark environments. They're common in the subsurface. They're common in groundwater. Sometimes they're present in drinking water. They can be present in animal guts at high abundance. They're, in fact, you've got them in your gut. I've got them in my gut. And if you have a particularly good diet, uh, eat a lot of vegetables, yeah. you've got a lot of these things. Now they're not doing photosynthesis, but what that tells us is it provides measure of the kind of common stock from which oxygenic photosynthesis emerged. And that allows us to lay out in a bit more detail, well, what are the sets of process? What was the background that this would emerge into? Now, this is still happening a long time ago, but now we finally have these organisms that we can study and again, ask that question. Well, what, you know, what, what common ground do they share with cyanobacteria as a way of trying to understand better how oxygenic photosynthesis emerged? Yeah, like you said, this is a new field and it's evolving. And so, so if I understand this correctly, Woody, so we, we have some understanding of the sort of the ancestors of cyanobacteria. And uh, would it be correct in saying that there was some sort of a freak mutation in that group and cyanobacteria emerged? Yeah, it's, be, it's, it's beyond just a single mutation. In fact, there's a lot of innovation that needs to take place. New proteins that need to be developed. Uh, new metals that need to be incorporated into those, into those proteins. But now that we have knowledge of this other group, we can start to ordinate those things that happen. Oh, this is what happened first. This is what happened second. Oh, then we would need to, you know, and some of it is, you know, when you look at the, the evolutionary process, it's always trying to do the most with what you already have. So take a protein you use for one purpose and adapt it for new function. That's always what's going on. And cyanobacteria had to do that for a number of different protein systems in order to put together the whole suite of biochemistry that we associate with the photosynthetic process today. And so, so we only know this sort of toxic oxygenation of the, of the earth started 2.3 billion years ago, but we don't know um, 
how far before that sort of the so uh, if i understand this correctly buddy there is a set of complex things that need to happen mm-hmm. uh for cyanobacteria to be able to do this right so initially um the 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 process was simple but it required a lot of ingredients uh for this to work and over time uh further uh, developments in cyanobacteria made it more efficient so the more i think about this would you know this puts lot of constraints on extraterrestrial life right i mean there there's so many things that need to come together for this to yes work. absolutely so if you look at the history you know so so this is a the this is i think a really a, a, it's potentially subtle but it's a really big deal this idea yeah. that we you know we 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 look for life elsewhere based on what we perceive as being important for the develop you know for how we developed on on this planet and we try to remain flexible but when we talk about history there's always this tension between two principles and and these are principles that really you know going back paleontologists have argued about for a long time and it's to what degree does us being here today reflect contingencies singularities rare events in the history of in the history of our lineage history of the biosphere really in earth's environments or to what degree is it convergent you know meaning if you could replay the tape of life again sure, you know maybe you wouldn't get exactly us but you would get something that looks a lot like us and and you, the development of of intelligence and all of those things would would happen because it's relatively deterministic these are really open questions and the best way that we evaluate them is we get to develop an understanding from earth but we're starting to develop understandings from other planets where n can equal more than 1 and 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 there's a big deal here particularly from mars so so for those of us that study this process on earth we pay a lot of attention to the discoveries that are coming out of in particular these missions on mars that have now realized that um well it's one of the biggest discoveries in planetary science i think in the last 20 years which is Mars for example has a rock record. We we didn't expect that. You know, M- Mars was warm and wet early in its history. So you're you're not limited to just understanding what Mars looks like now. You can ask a question about what it looked like in the past. What did it look like at the same times as when the Earth was developing a biosphere? What did it look like and you know and and so n can equal 2 and one of the interesting things that we've learned from Mars is that Mars at sometimes in its history appears to have been oxygenated. Now, oxygen was available, not like the earth, not as much as is present on the earth today, but enough that it left fingerprints in rocks that are present on Mars. And the reason that's interesting is that source of oxygen we don't think is photosynthetic. We think it's related to abiotic processes, photochemical processes operating in the atmosphere. But oxygen hmm. produced that way still has still provides opportunities for biology were it present on that planet and so that then think you then re- reflect on the earth and you say well maybe it's not so important you know if we wouldn't have gotten photosynthesis it's not obvious that we wouldn't have had maybe some other source of oxygen that could have enabled this kind of thing so we don't know whether that's true but it's the kind of thing that um it, you know it, it helps free up some of your thinking when all of a sudden you're not just limited to the earth example you can start talking about well are there rules for terrestrial planets in general how they want to evolve how they want to behave and how does that impact 
potential opportunities for biospheres biospheres were they to emerge there yeah and what this work is all pointing out to buddy if i understand it is that there is no earth's example in the sense that um like you say there was a singularity halfway through the through the progression and the outcomes would have looked extremely different if that singularity did not happen exactly right and so and so you know we look at the outcomes today and say you know that is sort of n equal to one outcome uh but um the, those outcomes could be different so so uh, going back to 2.3 billion years before that was was water still an important ingredient yes, for life yes very important and in fact um they're they're one of the the most interesting and important geological observables we have from from the earth and from mars show that the planets are warm and wet in their history and in fact earth's surface appears to have been um consistently habitable for more than 4 billion years yeah and so water is important but not oxygen that's right uh, uh you know yeah that's right and so um so so cyanobacteria emerges they they figures this thing out um oxygen becomes sort of a waste product in their process right yeah absolutely and then it becomes fully in you know so so not only do cyanobacteria start making it and and again they 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 basically fill the world with a poison you know uh, now you know the the what happens soon thereafter though is that the biosphere recognizes that okay there's this thing that's a poison i have to learn to how to survive it and th- then there are tips and tricks and we're trying to learn about more about how they came to 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 survive that um to survive that process but as they learn to survive it some of them are going to learn how to benefit greatly from it and that's because you can if you can learn to survive oxygen you can harness it to do work for you and the most important is you can now breathe it and and if you can breathe oxygen there is a tremendous amount of of energy to to be had by doing that so all of a sudden this basically cells that can figure out how to breathe oxygen they end up supercharged Hmm. Do we have an estimate would be of what what percentage of the biomass actually survived through that oh, singularity? It's a great question and we it's something that we don't understand very well except that we think it could be very little potentially. Now, we because it's mostly a microbial world, well it's entirely a microbial world at that point, you know, we don't have a rich fossil record like you do to to study mass extinctions like the one we talked about at the Cretaceous. where well you could just look at the fossils you know which groups went extinct you know which groups had preferential survivorship here the record isn't good enough we know the biosphere survives through this event but it's not good enough that for example you can count the number of fossils before and count the number of fossils after and determine for example an extinction rate or an extinction proportion so we don't have that kind of information yeah. what we do have is what we call phylogenetic information which is they're just comparing organisms that exist today you can look back in time and and by looking at the topology of those relationships and the length of branches of groups from one another one can use models to try to estimate extinction rates and there's some data to suggest that extinction rates were high during this event though it is a little bit model dependent yeah but but we can probably say with fair amount of confidence this this is the biggest extinction event that easy. ever happened easy i think e- easy 
easy. I mean, there, the, the numbers yes. of lineages that, that would have suffered, uh, you know, upon this are, are really great with the exception of cyanobacteria who are radiating and has been, you know, for them, the world's their oyster. Yeah, so, so the increase in oxygen levels, I would imagine, is, is sort of continuous. So, you know, it would have continued to increase over a period of time, right? So do we have any, um, any data on how, uh, how the organisms change during, uh, let me ask it differently. Is there a time period in which we know oxygen levels continue to increase? Yes, yeah, this, a... this is a great question. And it's one where there's a huge amount of debate right now in the field. And that's because the, the, the methods and approaches that we use to tell ancient oxygen levels are very sensitive yeah. to tiny amounts of oxygen. But what, so they, they're, they're effectively binary when you go across the, the oxygenation event. They, the, it's like flipping a switch. Okay, now the world is oxygenated. But we have a very hard time using those data, those pieces of data to, to evaluate, well, how much? Okay, the world is oxygenated, but it could yeah. be oxygenated at levels lower than today. So today, oxygen in the atmosphere is almost 21% by volume of the atmosphere, huge component of the atmosphere. But we think that when oxygen first rose, it did not rise to, to 21%. It may have only been, for example, a percent of the atmosphere, some lower level. And in fact, it may have stayed there for a while um, at those kind of lower levels as the biosphere is kind of figuring this new world out. Yeah. How did it affect cyanobacteria itself? Um, oxygen was a, was a waste product, so they were swimming in their own waste product. Uh, did that affect yeah, their own Yeah, it almost certainly did, because cyanobacteria were the first group, by virtue of the ones that make oxygen, to have to deal with it. And one of the interesting things, yeah. um, and it's a little bit inside pool here, uh, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but one of the really interesting things about the way that cyanobacteria developed oxygenic photosynthesis is by very heavily in the catalytic properties of a transition metal called manganese. Now you may not have thought much about manganese. It's, the, it's actually the third most abundant transition metal in the, in the Earth's crust. So it's, it's, there's quite a bit of it there after iron and, and titanium. And there was, there was tremendous amounts of manganese in early seawater, much more than in seawater today. And cyanobacteria invested in high intracellular concentrations of manganese as a part of figuring out how to do their photosynthetic process. Now, it just so happens that the same investment that they would put in for the evolution of photosynthesis ended up being really important as an antioxidant because that those levels of manganese inside cells are really important as antioxidants. So, so basically cyanobacteria had this kind of built-in fortuitous antioxidant mechanism that would help them survive this event preferentially compared to other cell types. Yeah, so further constraints on life's progression. Um, so, so manganese was uh, plenty available. Yeah, very in available seawater. in seawater. 
and so so this so this this was another sort of requirement right sunlight coming in and manganese available so that they can use it to essentially protect themselves against uh, this waste product they yeah, were creating absolutely. in Yeah absolutely and so the that's not why they're originally doing it because of course they don't there's no oxygen yet they don't know it's a protectant but that manganese is enabling yeah. them to to do small innovations in photosynthesis because ultimately it's manganese that provides the catalyst for water oxidation. So is cyanobacteria kind of tinkering with this process and figuring out, wow, I can use light and I can start to oxidize water. They're doing so using a material that is going to basically make them pre-adapted in a sense to being able to handle oxygen once they start making it in earnest. Yeah, and, and and I know that you have other work. Um, so, so what do we know, sort of the history of cyanobacteria um, to to the present time? Um, are they uh, have they survived as as they were, or they got incorporated, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. Disease? So, so the the history of photosynthesis is not finished with cyanobacteria, but what cyanobacteria did is they basically yeah. said, look we've figured out the biochemistry for how to do this process. And for those of you that know, you know, think, oh, well, who does photosynthesis today? Well, it's plants and plants aren't cyanobacteria. They're in a completely different <laughs> domain of life, right? Plants are more closely related to us than we are to cyanobacteria. You know, we're not bacteria at all. We're a, we're a, a domain of life called eukaryotes. And so what, what happened though, in the, in the evolution of eukaryotes is they said, you know what? Bacteria are really good at this metabolism thing instead of innovating this process for ourselves, let's just partner with a bacterium. And so for those of you that remember having to learn about the chloroplast in plants and algae, well, the chloroplast is derived from what was once a free living cyanobacterium. So that organelle, that now intracellular organelle is basically a, reflects a, a partnership gone to detente between a eukaryotic host cell a cell that would have looked a lot like ours and a, a, a cyanobacterial cell. So it's basically just said, oh, cyanobacteria, that's great. You figured out how to do this. Uh, I don't need to figure that out. I'm just gonna partner with you. And, and ultimately that partnership becomes a, an organelle in a eukaryotic cell that gives rise to algae. So all the algae out there have basically a, what was once a free living cyanobacterium in them. And then plants are simply a group of green algae that move on land, of course, quite successfully. You know, they're, they're a lot more than that, but that's their ancestry. <laughs> so the, the initial symbiosis, I don't know if that's the right term, between cyanobacteria and plant-like organisms, um, then it's sort of got systematized. So they, they essentially incorporated cyanobacteria into their own organism, Absolutely. right? Um, Absolutely. Ultimately. That's exactly right. So that's what that, we call and that, chloroplast. And, and that gives an Plus. organelle that we call the chloroplast. It, okay. And so every plant on yeah. Earth has it? Every that's single universe. plant has it. Yeah. And, and and how about on the animal side? Was there any any sort of uh, further incorporation of no, so animals have just not gone in this direction. But it is interesting that, of course, folks that maybe do a lot of diving or have had the opportunity to dive on a on a coral reef, 
we'll, we'll recognize all these beautiful, amazing colors associated with a lot of the corals. And what the corals are doing there is they basically partnered with an alga. And they've said, well, you know what? We'll host you inside of our tissues. We're not going to do a full on make you an organelle, but we'll host you inside of our tissues and we'll provide you a home and you, you know, enjoy some of the sunlight in this home and provide us with a little bit of energy. And then this, this problem that we associate yeah. with bleaching of corals is, is that bleaching is the loss of color. It's the loss of algae from those corals. And of course, without them, ultimately the corals die. And so, like you said before, um, cyanobacteria is, is, is sort of fundamental to life as we, as we know it today. If they did not exist or if they did not have that complex set of changes or mutations, then things would Absolutely. have been very different. Absolutely. We'll take a quick break, uh, Woody. When we come back, we'll talk about your recent paper on terrestrial mud deposition. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Woody. We were talking about uh, the singularity that happened uh, around 2.3 billion years ago on Earth. Uh, and that is the emergence of cyanobacteria, not emergence, but their ability to uh, essentially create energy uh, through photosynthesis, use of sunlight and water, and create oxygen as a waste product. And that fundamentally transformed the Earth uh, at that time, uh, probably killing off whatever was living then, most of it at least, uh, and and making uh, room for other types of organisms to to, to come in and survive. Um, you have a, a recent paper, Early Plant Organics Increased Global Terrestrial Mud Deposition Through Enhanced Flocculation. Um, and so, so, so you're arguing here, um, really plants uh, are an important part of that, uh, that, that mud deposition we see across the world. Yeah, exactly. So this, you know, so, so again, you know, as, as geobiologists, we're very interested in these evolutionary changes that impact the environment, transform the environment. And one of the things that geologists had recognized for, for a long time is that if you go back and you look at river rocks, so these are rocks that are that are left behind by rivers and if you look at, at river rocks they, they go back you know much of earth's history we have examples of the of the types of rocks made by rivers the types of sediment deposited by rivers and when you go prior to the evolution of plants so for most of earth's history you look at those river rocks they're mm -hmm. sandy they're all composed of sand and that might stand out a little bit for anyone that's spent any time near a major river today, whether walking around on the floodplain or the banks of the river, is that they're muddy. In fact, go to lowland landscapes anywhere today, and they're muddy landscapes. 
you know, there might be sand present, but they're incredibly muddy. So yeah. there was some connection between the, the way that mud moves and creates landscapes at the Earth's surface with plant evolution. And that was what we were really interested in. And that is something that we wanted to try to try to assess. So, so these muds don't show, if I understand correctly, they, they don't show plant um, material, right? Um, it, it, but but, but it, uh, you're saying that the, the creation of that mud actually had um, plants are responsible for it? Yeah, so this, is the, this is, was the big question. Yeah. Is it that plants are responsible for making mud or are they trapping mud? Because I mean, you know, you can imagine, you know, a big forest, you have these big plants, they help interact with the river flow, slow it down. Maybe that can help mud fall out. The, the root systems can maybe help hold, hold mud in place. But one of the issues we had with that hypothesis was if you look prior to plants, the earth is still full of mud. It just doesn't appear in terrestrial environments. Hmm. It's still moving through earth's surface environments, but when it's in rivers, it's just moving. It's moving with the water. It's not falling out to form part of the bottom of the river or the banks of the river. Hmm. And so, it, so it's, it doesn't look like it was a change in the mud budget. It's a change in what is causing mud to be sedimented versus stay in the water. And so for anyone that's played with mud in, you know, imagine getting a, a jug of water out and putting some mud or some clay in it and shaking it up. And what you end up with is a, is a totally cloudy solution. And, and you can set it on your countertop and wait for it to clear, but the time it's gonna take to clear is days. That's yeah. how long it takes. Those particles are so small and so fine that they have almost no settling velocity. And right. so with no settling velocity, well, now you put them in a turbulent river and they're just swept out to the oceans. So what is it gonna cause them? What is it gonna take those tiny particles, sub-micron sized particles and cause them to form sediment on the bed? Hmm. Well, this is where we had an idea. And, and the, idea, the idea was maybe plants are not directly interacting with the flow because when we see this change the kind of rise of mud in terrestrial landscapes it's not associated with the evolution of forests it occurs before that it's when plants it, we're talking about uh, what we what we call bryophytes or bryophyte grade organisms and and if that name doesn't mean anything to you think moss or yeah. or a hornwort i mean centimeter scale plants with no roots uh, no vascular tissue to transport water around, um, very, very primitive um, plants. And yet they totally changed the world. Well, how could they have changed the world? They don't, you know, how does the Mississippi River care about a little bit of moss on its back? You know, that, well, we said, you know what those plants are doing is they are increasing greatly the amount of organic molecules that are present in earth surface environments. And the thing that's so interesting about plant organics in particular is that they're comprised of polymers, often polymers of sugars. And yes. those polymers of sugars have very interesting chemistry, a kind of repeating charge that interacts with the clay particles and can help knit them together to form what we call flocks, or they're really just particle aggregates. 
But the thing that's interesting is if you take a bunch of micron sized particles and knit them together into a 200 micron sized flock, well, now that's a particle that behaves like sand. It wants to fall out of the river water. It wants to, to be entered into the bed. It wants to be deposited. And so this is something that we really wanted to understand. We sought to under to, to measure this effect experimentally yeah. using a kind of, uh, you know, by basically building a river in the lab, if you will, um, <laughs> and then introducing various forms of, of organic polymers to it, various forms of sediment to it to evaluate whether or not this could be a reasonable explanation. And what we found is that the effect is very large. Even a small amount of plant-derived molecules can, can very effectively knit together this fine-grained sediment and basically turn a, a river that was sandy into a river that was muddy. Hmm. You say in the paper, using a transport model, we found that flocculation substantially increased mud deposition resulting in muddier floodplains. So this is some sort of fluid dynamics type modeling? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it has a, a fluid dynamics component and then it has a kind of rule-based sedimentation component yeah. that allows us to predict where mud would want to fall out. For example, as a river goes into flood, it emerges over its floodplain banks. Well, how much of the mud is gonna fall out and settle there versus how much of the sand is gonna settle there, that kind of thing. Does it have any implication, Woody, for our search on Mars? Absolutely. So that, it's such a great question. The, the, the thing that's so interesting about Mars is if you, if you look at river deposits on Mars, they look like the deposits on Earth before plants. Hmm. They're primarily sandy. And, and, and so that gives us some reassurance in a sense that really what we're looking at here is this, is this major impact. Now, we don't think there were plants on Mars. Um, we don't think that's you know, was, was responsible for, uh, you know, for, the, for river deposits, but there, there were large rivers, and in fact, long-lived rivers um, yeah. all over the surface of Mars. But these are behaving very much like rivers on the earth before the advent of plants. So, so that, that gives us some idea or, or maybe gives us some uh, expectation of probabilities of certain things existing on Mars. Um, and so constrain that problem a little bit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, in, in conclusion, Woody, you know, if you were to time travel, go all the way, all the way back to 4.5 billion years, it wasn't a very hospitable place, but uh, very quickly, it seems like um, life emerged, some sort of life emerged. Uh, I can quite remember the, the oldest rock that we have, I think from Australia or something, where we, there was some sign of the first sort of bacterium uh, was yeah. about four uh, years ago, right? About four billion, yep, yep. About four billion years ago. So life emerged fairly quickly but it was a different types of life. So, so, so if you were to time travel, what, what would you want to know from 4.5 to 2.3? Oh, that's a great question. I would love to go back, um, maybe square in this interval we call the Archean, which is this, is this interval that runs from about uh, 3.5 billion years right to the, the oxygenation event, this, this kind of uh, uh, rise of oxygen. 
event. So I would want to go right in the middle of that time, but I don't want to go just myself. I want to bring two things with me. Yeah. I want to bring a microscope yeah. because it is my expectation that we're going to see entirely microbial life at that time. And I want to be able to see what those cells look like. And I also want to bring a, a sequencer because I want to be able to interrogate what those organisms might be capable of by sequencing their genomes. Not only can we use that to place it in the tree of life, but we end up with a kind of, uh, a kind of genomic repertoire of the metabolisms that those microbes might be, might be capable of. And I'm sure there would be surprises, but it would be incredible, for example, to have a census of the organisms present on the planet before this major extinction that would have accompanied the rise of oxygen. Yeah, so this is, uh, I can't quite remember the right term. Um, uh, you know, that life started uh, by something crashing onto Earth and, you know, life came from outer space, uh, sort of hypothesis. Panspermia. Uh, Panspermia is the term, yes. Uh, um, is there... Uh, is there any additional information that we can put in that direction or we don't have any data? There, we don't have any data and the earth is actually a very hard place to look, but you've mentioned Mars. And th this is the thing that a lot of us that, that you know, pay close attention to what's happening on Mars are interested in. Now, yeah. there's a mission on Mars surface right now, just landed two months ago called Mars 2020. And, it's, it, and it is a sample return mission. And so... We are going to get materials back from Mars that will be better preserved than anything we could get from the early Earth. And that basically has to do with the fact that Mars is tectonically quiet while the Earth is not. And so the Earth's earliest record is some of our most beat up rocks, in a sense. Mm -hmm. That's not true of Mars. And imagine you find evidence of life on Mars, whether it's extant or whether it's historical evidence of life on Mars. That's the kind of thing that would allow us to, to address. Well, to what degree does it share commonality with the life that we find on Earth? Is it based on the same set of rules? Does it even share a common ancestor as would be predicted under the panspermia idea? If it does, we can put both Earth life and Mars life on the same tree of life and use that to evaluate. So the thing that's so interesting about that, uh, about that panspermia idea is, well, maybe we can't study it from the early Earth, but we can test it from Mars and it makes predictions for what we should find were we to ever observe um, traces of, of either extant or extinct life on Mars. Yeah, and, and if, if we do find that, then obviously there's implications for the rest of the solar system too, like Titan and other places. If things came from outer space and sort of spread around uh, the solar system, we might be able to find it elsewhere as well. Absolutely. I, it would, the ramifications would be really large. Like maybe that is a major way that life moves from planetary body to planetary body. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, Woody. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This has been great. Thanks, Gil. Thank you.